First Peter chapter three, and we're picking it up in verse seventeen where we left off um, last week here. And so let me just get myself all arranged. We got a little bit of a different um, setup here, and so we are are looking at. Um, a perspective on suffering because this is kind of what Peter has been addressing and talking about now with the saints that are been scattered abroad because uh, of persecution and trials that they're they're facing. Now, we've just come out of a section dealing with being a witness, right? And being a witness in, in hard times, times where people are gunning for you, they're signaling you out, they're making false statements about you. That'd be hard. That's what these Christians were going through. But Peter says, first of all, he says, hold your tongue. Don't fight back. Don't, don't revile back at them. Don't sweat it because you're actually, he says, you're actually being blessed because of the suffering that you're going through. Right there in chapter 3, verse 14. You're actually being blessed. So instead, he says in verse 15, set apart or sanctify the Lord God in your hearts. Choose, in other words, to elevate Jesus above everything else. Choose to live for him and honor him over any hardship that you might endure. You see, it would be easy in these times. And in the times we're living now, it'd be easy just to tap out, to say, I give up. But Peter says it's in these moments of adversity that we can stand up and shine even brighter as Christians. What are you reflecting today? See, there's a lot of parallels for what we're dealing with today with what Peter was addressing to the people back then. And as the world watches things unravel, the economy crumble, mortality being realized all the more, Peter says you're to be ready. Ready for what? Ready to give an answer for the hope that lies within you. And that's what Peter has been also looking to balance the suffering with the Christians with the hope that we have. That's how he started the letter. Since we have, right there in chapter 1, verse, verse 3, since we have been begotten to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance incorruptible that does not fade away. You see, guys, we have a living hope that we are to be expressing and showing, that we're to be demonstrating. Now, in order for that to happen, there needs to be an evidence of that. Hope needs to be evident. In other words, we're not to be running around in these times of crisis, in a mad panic over what we see. We're not to be freaking out and stressed over the unknowns. That doesn't give anybody a reason to come to you and say, hey, tell me what makes you so grounded in these times. No, they're going to be looking at you going, oh my goodness, pull it together, bud. Get a grip on yourself here. But when they see a person now, in the midst of all these things, responding with peace and hope, they're going to ask, how? How are you able to live that way? And it gives us the opportunity to share with them the reason for the hope that is in us, as Peter addressed in verse 15 of chapter 3. So regardless of, of uncertain times or suffering, there's a purpose behind it and an opportunity in it. Isn't that great? I mean, I just, I just get so blown away when I think about all that's going on in the world. And, and as tragic as things are, I'm not trying to, to, you know, overlook it in any way. But I think about what God's doing through the churches and how the word of God is going out in great ways right now. It's amazing. And, and we need to continue to pray for churches to be able to continue to share the good news with people in even greater ways than they ever had before. Pray for churches that are being hit. Uh, I was just um, uh, talking with some brothers last night, some pastor friends, and, and uh, we were hearing some news about a, um, a, a brother of ours in New York, in, in um, 
uh, one of the suburbs there of Manhattan and how they just had an outbreak of this virus going on. And, and we need to pray for these guys that are going through real trials and hardships. And we're experiencing, I'm sure, all around us. But let's be praying for one another and just looking to see this as a moment for us to shine bright for Jesus. And so <clears throat> we're going to be talking about these things a bit more today, talking about suffering. Yay, aren't you glad for that? Aren't you glad you tuned in? Don't leave the, the live stream just yet, okay? Because we're going to be talking about having a right perspective on suffering in these times. And I hope this is going to bring some encouragement for you because it's just going along. This isn't a message I'm preparing just for this day. But I thank the Lord that what we're doing as we're going verse by verse through First Peter, we're hitting some material here that is so apropos and applicable for our times right now. This has been just incredible to see. And, and, and so... Peter's writing to give this encouragement and hope for people that are going through these adverse and hard times. And again, just very timely for us. So look at this in verse 17. That's a long intro. Forgive me for that. But we're going to get into it now in verse, verse 17 of chapter 3. For it is better, if it is the will of God, to suffer for doing good than for doing evil. All right. Thank you, Captain Obvious, for that word right there. How true that is, right? We get it. I mean, you nailed that one there. It's better to suffer for doing good than for doing evil. Yeah, that's not something we need to be told. But this would have meant much for the people in this day that Peter's running to that are going through suffering and wondering why it's happening. Because they're living for the Lord. They're following Jesus, and yet all these things are coming against them. They might be wondering, why is this happening? It shouldn't go this way. But you see, suffering is okay when it's serving a good purpose. And it can. Because, do you see what it says? If it is the will of God, Peter acknowledges that your suffering might just be right in line with the will of God. Think about that. That's going to change a lot of people from saying so quickly, well, I'm just trying to seek the will of God in my life. They're going to be like, going, oh my goodness, I don't know if I want to seek the will of God now. If it's the will of God for me to suffer. I mean, people are thinking, I thought that living for Jesus was just going to be, you know, soaring over the rainbow to a pot of gold somewhere. Was this going to be a breeze? But you see, it might also be the Lord's desire to refine you and allow you to go through a period of suffering. And we talked about that last week as we looked at some of the reasons why we go through trials and suffering. First of all, what can suffering do? Well, it can cause us to long for heaven all the more. And we begin to realize that this is not our home. That we're living for something far greater. It causes us to press into Jesus all the more. Isn't that a great thing? When we go through these times. And it gives opportunity for God to receive greater glory. As we show our hope and trust in him. And it's our ultimate purpose in life. Is to live for the glory of God. And sometimes it's through suffering that God is greater glorified. In and through our lives. And if we're living for that purpose. Then we would welcome suffering to say God. My whole purpose of existence is to glorify you. So if you can do that in a greater way through suffering. Bring it on. That, that should be our perspective and our attitude. I was encouraged this past week. As I was calling uh, some from the church and I'm, I'm making the rounds too along with the elders and, and, and looking just to touch base with many of you guys and, um, and just, you know, see how you're doing. But I was so encouraged as, as I was talking with some of you and, and just hearing and seeing the hope that you have through these difficult days that we find ourselves in uh, because it's causing many of you just to, again, press in with Jesus all the more to long for heaven. 
And we're seeing the great things that God is doing through all this. It, it may not be comfortable, but God is at work. And he's working through suffering. So don't think that because you're a Christian that you're going to be immune from these things. In fact, God lets us know quite clearly that we can expect this. And it tells us in God's word. I mean, think about this, 1 Timothy 3.12. I'm sure this is a verse that you have just highlighted, circled, you've put up on the fridge at home, right? Yes, and all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. Yikes. And that's a promise that not many of us are wanting to claim for ourselves, is it? But that's right there in God's word. That if you're living for God, you can expect at times suffering and and persecution and trials. Now, Peter makes it clear there in verse 17 that if you're suffering because you're being a big jerk, you know, a big colossal doofus, don't take that as though you're right in God's will, as though you're sitting there saying, oh, well, I'm just suffering for Jesus. No, you're suffering because you're being an idiot, right? Like, that's no credit to you, and this is no reflection of God's will in your life. That's why Peter says, if you suffer for doing good, it's okay. It's all right. And it may just be the Lord's will for you. But some suffering that people go through is just self-inflicted. You need to be able to discern the difference there, right? But if you're living for God and you're experiencing suffering, take heart. Look at what Peter points us to next here in verse 18. This gets good here. Look at verse 18 of chapter 3. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the just for the unjust, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive by the Spirit. So Christ himself suffered, and if he suffered, then we shouldn't expect to go unscathed, right? But Peter wants to show us something wonderful here. Christ suffered so that our suffering wouldn't last ultimately. See, Jesus suffered once, it says. Right at the beginning of verse 18. For Christ also suffered once. It was a one-time thing that Jesus went through so that it would eliminate ultimately our suffering. His wasn't an ongoing thing. It was done and it was settled. And he suffered for our sins. And it's our sins that bring the greatest amount of suffering in our lives, doesn't it? It's a result of sin. But Jesus suffered for sins once so that we could be forgiven, cleansed, and experience newness of life in him. Now, you might feel undeserving of that. You might be reflecting on your own self and thinking, man, I just... I just it's hard for me to receive that because I don't feel like I'm deserving of that. Well, you're right. You're not. But, but take heart. Because notice what it says there. It's the just for the unjust. Do you see that there in your word? I hope you do. And I hope you've, you've circled that unline, uh, and underlined that. Because Jesus, the just, <clears throat> died for the unjust. He didn't die for the just. He didn't die for the deserving. He didn't die for the holy. He died for sinners like you and me because we're the ones that needed it. And we couldn't do the work ourselves. We needed help. We needed a just and righteous person to come and do that work for us, which is what Jesus is and what Jesus did. He alone was just. So Jesus, the just, suffered by going to the cross to pay the penalty for the sins of us, the unjust. And that's good news right there. This verse right here in Peter, verse 18, is a golden verse here that just summarizes the extent of the gospel for us. And, and, and the great thing again is that the work is done. It's complete. 
He suffered once. And suffering we experience today isn't to pay for our sins, as some people think, right? Sometimes it's the result of, of unrepentant sin. It's to bring us back to the Lord. But suffering doesn't pay for our sins. It's all been done through Jesus on the cross. And notice what this suffering did. Catch this here. Jesus did this so that he might bring us to God. Do you see that there? That he might bring us to God. Oh man, this is gold. How awesome is that? Because another great byproduct of suffering is that it will oftentimes lead us closer to God and enjoy this fellowship of suffering as Paul talks about in in Philippians chapter 3. Don't you find that as everything is going well, we tend to feel a little more inclined to just kind of leave God out of things. But the moment that things get tense, we find ourselves pressing into God a whole lot more. Don't you find that? There was a man that was late for an important job interview and he's circling the block trying to find a parking spot and get to his interview on time. So crucial. And so as he's driving around, there's no parking available and he's just crying out to God, God, if you would just provide a parking spot for me, I promise I'll get my life back on track and I won't sleep in on Sundays and I'll go to church. And just as he prays that, a car pulls out right in front of him. And the man says, never mind, God, a spot just opened up for me. And you see, it's so, we're so prone to do just that where when in a moment of crisis, we're calling out to the Lord. But then when everything is fine, we're like, oh no, it's good, I got this. We got a handle on that now. And we tend to kind of Push God aside. We're so prone to do that. But you see, Jesus ultimately came and laid his life down, the just for the unjust, so that we could now be brought to God and brought into this fellowship with God that's to be an ongoing, dependent kind of life that we live on the Lord. See, suffering is meant to be an aid to help us see that we need God and that we need him always. Not just in moments of crisis, but... In all situations and in all circumstances, we need the Lord. As Jesus said, without me, you can do nothing. And it's so true. So it's meant to bring us to God. Jesus suffered the greatest so this could be secured for us forever. And I trust that we are taking advantage of this access that we have to God. The ancient, ancient Greek word translated bring was used of admission to an audience, um, to an audience with a great king. An admission of an audience to a great king. And it spoke of privileged access, of the honor of having a prolonged audience with someone of great worth, rank, and influence. How cool is that? It tells us in Romans chapter five, verse one to two, therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom also we have access by faith into this grace in which we stand and rejoice in hope of the glory of God. That's the access that we enjoy. And I pray that you are indeed experiencing that and enjoying that with the Lord. That you recognize what Jesus has done so that you could be brought to God and have access with somebody that we don't deserve, but Jesus has accomplished that for us. Now, notice it says too that Jesus was put to death in the flesh. And made alive by the Spirit. In a similar way, I think this is so good because as we begin to die to the flesh and to sin, what happens is we become more alive by the Spirit. Suffering will often have that effect on us. And it's a positive effect. As we begin to see ourselves refined and say, you know what? We begin to have a different perspective on what's truly important. And hopefully it's to remind us that we need the Lord. 
He's who I want to live for. And it causes us to just all the more surrender to, you know, or lay aside the flesh and sin and say, I want to be more alive in the spirit. Now, coming out of verse 18 and into verse 19, we come upon some scripture that is perhaps some of the most puzzling scripture in the New Testament. Isn't that great? And, and like we typically do at, at Riverside, when we come upon some scriptures that are, are kind of difficult, we just skip in and go down to the next verse here. So verse 23, we'll just keep moving on here. Now, we're going to look to tackle this. Now listen, if you're tuning in here, and, and maybe you're new to the Bible and studying the Bible, let me just tell you and encourage you that most of the Bible is very simple and plain and easy to understand. And it speaks to us here, just words of life and, and, and godliness and encouragement and, and power. And it's very simple to understand. But there are a few passages that are a little bit more obscure, but really ultimately have no bearing on our salvation. Because ultimately, when we look at the word of God, it's very simple, that God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, right? That whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have everlasting life. I mean, there's simplicity in in God's word. Don't get hung up on things like this. But because we go through verse by verse, chapter to chapter here, we're going to look at this and look at at it in context and try to make some sense of this here together, all right? So verse 19... Now, coming off of of verse 18, remember uh, that Jesus, who's put to death in the flesh, but made alive by the Spirit, by whom also, in verse 19, he went and preached to the spirits in prison, who formerly were disobedient, when once the divine long-suffering waited in the days of Noah, while while the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is eight souls, were saved through water. So, we're left with some interesting exegesis to do here now, and try to look at at what is going on here. Now, some interpret this verse to say that Jesus, after his death, descended down into hell. Now, that's even written into the Apostles' Creed. If you look at the Apostles' Creed, you'll see that he, he, he died and, and he descended into hell. Some have even taken it further and have tried to say that Jesus had to go to hell where he suffered at the hands of, uh, of the enemy and the demons. And it's a popular teaching among you know, the word of faith Movement. Let me just say that nowhere does it say in God's word that Jesus descended into hell. And we certainly do not believe that Jesus was subjected in this way of suffering before the devil or his demons and was tortured in hell for these three days between his death and resurrection. That is an aberrant teaching, I believe. So what does this mean? Who are the spirits that were preached to in prison? Well, I think Luke chapter 16 shed some interesting light on this for us that is important for us to look at and help give us some context for this because it's there in Luke 16 that Jesus shares a parable of a rich man and Lazarus so it says in Luke 16 says this starting verse 22 so it was that the beggar died and was carried by the angels to Abraham's bosom the rich man also died and was buried and being in torments in Hades he lifted up his eyes and saw Abraham afar off and Lazarus in his bosom then he cried and said father Abraham have mercy on me and send Lazarus that he may dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue for I'm tormented in this flame but Abraham said son remember that in your lifetime you received your good things and likewise Lazarus, evil things. But now he is comforted and you are tormented. And besides all this, between us and you, there is a great gulf fixed so that those who want to pass from here to you cannot, nor can those from there 
passed to us. So we see from that parable that Jesus shared, and many believe it's more than just a parable, but he's shedding some light into a reality that takes place here after death. But we see there that, that Hades was divided up into two compartments. And let me make this distinction. Hades is not hell. This here that Jesus is speaking of was a place that people um, that died before Jesus came and died himself where people were brought after death. This is all pre-Jesus times and pre-Jesus' you know, death and resurrection. And so this place is called the abode of the dead or it's called Hades as the Greek called or Sheol as the Hebrews call it. This is that place, the abode of the dead. And it was an intermediary place. It was a holding place until those in it received their final judgment and destination. Because notice what Revelation chapter 20, verse 13 to 15 says, that the sea, this is now leading to the end of times, after the millennium, the great white throne judgment where Jesus gives a final judgment to all those that died apart from faith in him. And notice what it says in Revelation 20, verse 13, the sea gave up the dead who were in it, and death and Hades delivered up the dead who were in them, and they were judged, each one according to his works. Then... Death and Hades were cast into the lake of fire. This is the second death. And anyone not found written in the book of life was cast into the lake of fire. That is hell. The lake of fire is the final eternal flame that burns forever and ever. And that is what we would refer to as hell. But so Hades is this intermediary place where people that died were brought into and awaiting their final destination. All right? And eventually... Hades is going to be given up and all those that are in it and placed before Jesus for the great white throne judgment. And then that is their final sentencing, their second death. And then they're cast in lake of fire, which is hell. So who then is Jesus <clears throat> preaching to when he goes down into this place called Hades? Were these demonic spirits or, or spirits of people? I believe that Jesus spoke to people who had died, were now in Hades, and they're they're waiting their final destination. Peter points out that he spoke to those that were disobedient in former times, in the days of Noah. So, all people that had died up to Jesus' crucifixion now were here. Now, something that Jesus preached to those that died apart from faith in God, and that Jesus was preaching the gospel, giving them opportunity to repent and to turn to him. That, again, is not a teaching that we find in the Bible. And there are some Groups that believe that some will have an opportunity to repent and be saved after death. I don't believe the Bible teaches that at all. I think that when we die, that's in fact Hebrews 9.27 says that it is appointed once for man to die and then the judgment. And so we're going to die and that's it. And, and what you've done with the Lord here in this life while you've had breath, what you've done for Jesus matters, whether you've accepted him as your savior or rejected him. And that's going to determine your ultimate destination. So Jesus isn't preaching a good news message to them. The word preached, as it says there in verse 19, could imply, you know, a, a, herald, a, a heralding a message or proclaiming an authoritative message. It doesn't have to be one of the gospel of good news. And I believe what happened here is that Jesus went into Hades and, and revealed his victory over all principalities and powers over sin and over death itself. 
And he preached his victory over his enemies. Look at what Colossians chapter 2 verse 15 says. Having disarmed principalities and powers and made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them in it. I could just see all these people there that are in Hades and even probably, you know, demons having access there just thinking, ah, that's it. We've just defeated him. We've got him made. He's, he can't do anything. Suddenly Jesus shows up. Hey guys, guess what? I just died for the sins of the world. And guess what? I'm alive and I'm going to be resurrected and I'm going to triumph over sin and death and I'm going to triumph over you have already done it. I mean, that's the word that Jesus is, is proclaiming there, I believe. And that is so exciting and awesome. But I believe something else wonderful happened here while Jesus was there in Hades between his death and between his resurrection. Remember the thief on the cross? And the thief said, Jesus, you know, would you remember me? And Jesus said to him, what? Today, you'll be with me in paradise. You're going to be with me in paradise. It wasn't going to be something where Jesus said, you know what? Uh, I'll tell you what, but uh, sounds good. You got to hang out for a little while in Hades. Um, I'm going to do some more stuff and some work. And then uh, down the road, we can be reunited. No, Jesus said, today you'll be with me in paradise. So you've got the other side of Hades now. Remember that parable in Luke 16 where the rich man is there and he's in torment. But there's a great gulf separating that from Abraham's bosom. And I believe it's in Abraham's bosom that all those that died with a faith in God. Remember, there are people throughout the Old Testament that believed in God, just like Abraham, who believed in God and it was accredited to him as righteousness. And, and notice what Hebrews 11 verse 13 says. This is important. It says there that these all died in faith, not having yet received the promises, but having seen them afar off, were assured of them, embraced them, and confessed that they were strangers and pilgrims on the earth. So these people died not yet having received the promises. And what was the promise? The promise was Jesus, the Messiah, that God said, I'm going to send a savior into the world, the Messiah, the deliverer. That was the promise that they were all waiting for, looking forward to. They hadn't seen it yet because Jesus hadn't come. But they died in faith. And as they died in faith of that promise, they were there in Abraham's bosom where they were comforted. They were blessed. They weren't in torment like those in in Hades. And nobody could cross over. There There was nothing they could do. But they were there waiting. And so I believe when Jesus died, he went down into this place now again where the the spirits were in prison awaiting their final destination. For those in Hades, they're going to be waiting a little bit longer. But Jesus comes down and he says, guys, your promise is here. I've done the work now. Guess what? We get to go home now to heaven. I believe Jesus at the time emptied this place of Abraham's bosom. Because notice what we read now in Ephesians 4, 8 to 10. It says there, therefore he says, when he ascended on high, he led captivity captive and gave gifts to men. Now this, he ascended, what does it mean? But that he also first descended into the lower parts of the earth. And he who descended is also the one who ascended far above all heaven, heavens that he might fill all things. He led captivity captive. I believe what is implied there is that as he went down to Hades, that he emptied Abraham's bosom. And he led those that were there, he led them free. And he brought them home to heaven. Just like he said to that man on the cross, today you'll be with me in paradise. Now, when a believer dies today, I believe they are, because the work is done, because our promise has come, because Jesus has done the work for us, I believe that when we die today, we are going to be with the Lord right now in heaven. 
Paul says in, in 2 Corinthians 5.8 that to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. So I don't believe that we're awaiting an intermediary place or in an intermediary place that we are with the Lord today when we die. Oh, as we think about our sister Ruth, who is right now celebrating with Jesus. What a thought that is. Because she's put her faith in Jesus, she is with him right now, comforted, blessed. And she's awaiting for all of us to get there eventually too, one day. Now, let's just remind ourselves of the whole context that Peter's writing to. Because he's dealing with Christians who are going through adverse times. They've been struggling with opposition, persecution. And now Peter is sharing with them to be a witness even through these hard times. So, so Peter brings this great work of Jesus into the picture now to remind us that we've already been secured the victory. And, and, and how we need to be just faithful now, just as Noah was. He's tying in Noah and his situation. Think about that. Because Noah was a faithful man, right? I mean, God tells him to build an ark. And, and Noah's like, you want me to do what? Lord, build a, a big boat? Because you're going to flood this world? Like, this is ridiculous. This doesn't make sense. But Noah one did it. And he was called to live as a witness under some pretty wicked times. And guess what? With all those years that Noah was preaching and witnessing and being a living sermon and just building the ark, all through those years, no one responded. Noah only took seven people with him on the ark. Only eight people were saved. Now you might think that the trial you're in is not having any purpose or there's nothing good coming out of it. But you need to leave that with the Lord. Let him work those things out. As for us, we're called to simply be faithful to God. Whether that's in a season of hardships, headaches, or hurts, keep living for Jesus because he's working it all out and he's already worked it all out as he suffered once. As he's paid the penalty and the price for our sins that we could be secured life in him. The victory is ours. And that he might bring us to God He's completed the work and we're able now to rest in his salvation and victory. So don't worry about the things that you see going on around you. Don't worry about what the outcome might be. Be faithful to God. Let him take care of all those things. I love what William McDonald said. He said this, Characteristically, in the world's history, the majority has not been right. True believers are usually a small remnant. So one's faith should not falter because of the small number of the saved. There were only eight believers in Noah's day, but think about the difference. There's millions today. God is doing a great work here. And he's always had a remnant that will carry out his purposes and his plans as we seek to be faithful to him. Now, Peter also links Noah and his passing through the waters now to our act of water baptism. Look at what it says in verse 21. There is also an antitype, which now saves us. Baptism. Not the removal of the filth of the flesh, but the answer of a good conscience to our God through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God, angels and authorities and powers having been made subject to him. Now, let's be clear about something right off the bat. I'm not saying it, and Peter is not saying that water baptism is essential for salvation. It's not a, a, a part of salvation in any way. We're not saying that you need to be baptized to be saved, as some would believe. 
What Peter's getting at is that just as the world was made new through the flood, as sin and wickedness was washed away, so too baptism becomes a picture of the work that Jesus does in us. Through his sacrifice and that forgiveness of sin that he brings to us, we're made new. And our sin now is washed away. Water baptism is simply a picture of that work that Jesus has done internally in us. We lay down the old life in the waters of baptism. As we come up anew, we come up clean. Newness of life. It's not pictured very well when we do it in the Fraser River, in those waters. It's not like you're coming up. But the idea is there that all of our old stuff, all of our sin is washed away. That's what Jesus has done internally in us, you see. So baptism doesn't do that physically for us. Jesus does it. And baptism just becomes that outward expression of an inward reality that Jesus has cleansed us and made us new in him. And so Peter's very careful to point out that baptism, notice he says, it doesn't remove the filth of the flesh. He says that in verse 21. Rather, it's having a good conscience toward God. And that only comes through putting your faith in Jesus, who took your sins and mine, and he died on a cross to pay the penalty for them. That we would not be judged accordingly. Remember, it's the just for the unjust. And we've been justified now through faith in Jesus, just as if I've never sinned. That's a good conscience now toward God. That is having peace with God. That is what saves you. That is what saves me. And I ask you, do you have that good conscience toward God? Are you resting in the reality that you are saved, that you are a child of God, that your sins are forgiven? You see, I talk to a lot of people who claim to be a Christian claim to be saved, but what they're oftentimes relying on is their own works. When I ask them, why are you going to heaven? Their response will oftentimes be, well, because I believe I'm, well, I'm trying to be a good person. I'm trying to do good things. Now, that might, might help you feel good, but then in your own conscience, you're going, have I done enough? Or if I've done three good works today, suddenly I've done a bad work or I've committed some kind of sin. Suddenly I'm like, oh my goodness, I've just taken three steps forward, but now I've just taken like six steps backwards. And you're constantly struggling with this weight of, have my good works been enough? Is it outweighing these things? And, and, and we don't have a good, clear conscience. A clear conscience can only come when we put our faith in Jesus and in the work he's done for us and we rest in his grace, knowing that it's not through us. It's not by us that we're saved. It's through Jesus and what he's done by dying on a cross and rising again, showing that his work took. It was accepted by God and he alone can forgive me my sin. I can't do that. That's what it means to have a good conscience. And, and if you're here today and you're watching online and, and you're, you're hearing this message, maybe even at a later date, and you're sitting here not sure where you stand with God, I want to tell you that, that your standing with God can change in a heartbeat for the good by you simply admitting your sin and your need for forgiveness and recognizing you can't do that for yourself. You need Jesus, who is the only just one. And by putting your faith in Jesus, you can be saved, forgiven. And you see what Jesus did is he took all of your sin and he paid the penalty for that sin. He took God's judgment for that sin and he replaced that now with his righteousness. He took your sin to give you 
his righteousness so that you could have a right standing with God. And you need to put your faith in Jesus for that to happen. You need to accept it by grace. Grace is getting what we don't deserve. You can't work for it. You can't earn it. Don't try. Receive it simply by his grace. And when you do, you suddenly can live with a good conscience toward God to know that I'm in Christ and Christ is in me. And that is enough. I pray that you are standing right with God today. And if not, know that that can change in a second by simply acknowledging your sin and turning to Jesus today. Would you do that? Well, I think, you know what? I think that's just a good place to end right there. I was going to keep going here. Um, but uh, we're going to end right there. Now, I'm going to invite the worship team to come on up and we're going to just, we'll close with a couple of songs here today. But, you know, for all those things to happen, for us to be given right standing with God, man, Jesus had to come and suffer. And he did that for us. That's how we began this morning. But again, what do we see? That the suffering led to great triumphs. And in the same way, when we suffer, we have the hope that it will bring about a great victory. It's going to bring about a great victory in the end because our end has been secured. Our, our final destination has been secured through Jesus. And that's Peter's point in, in, back in, in chapter 3, verse 9, when he says, knowing that you were called to this, that you may inherit a blessing. We're going to inherit a blessing. And that blessing may come even through suffering. But that's okay. Have the right perspective. Have that mind of Jesus. Next week, we're going to look at... Let me just read verse 1 of chapter 4. Therefore, since Christ suffered for us in the flesh, arm yourselves also with the same mind. For he who has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin. So I pray this week, you begin to arm yourselves with the same mind. Don't let the things going on in the world drag you down. Don't think, oh my goodness, why am I suffering? Realize that just as Jesus suffered for us, let us have that same mind that understood there was something greater being accomplished through it. Have a right perspective on suffering here today. Lean on Jesus. Press in with Jesus all the more. May he comfort you and strengthen you through these times because there's good that comes through all these things. All right, let me pray. God, we thank you for this time to look in your word and just for the help and the hope we have in you. Thank you, God, for speaking to us today and I pray that you'll continue just to flood my my family, my friends, our church here with just that encouragement and love of God here and that it would bring comfort and peace to us in these times. Just provide for us, meet the needs going on, Lord. And uh, we just look to you now in your name, Jesus. Amen.